This week on Keeping Faith. You know, you're literally sitting on your sleeping bag. Well, you hide your food in your sleeping bag because, you know, the troop of baboons around you will grab it if you don't. You just hear the sounds of the forest in the night. You can hear the hyenas crying and laughing in the distance. And you can almost hear the roars of some lions down in the Kajiado Plains. But just being in the dark, you don't have a flashlight. I really wrote a lot of reflections of my life because you simply were just confined to the space that you were put in. So things that I probably wouldn't think about on a day-to-day basis where I would just avoid them because I, I can, I couldn't then. Al-Karim Versi grew up loving urban life in Nairobi, Kenya. But it wasn't until he ventured outside the city and into the natural world that the deepest parts of him truly came to life. And since then, he's learned to lean on this connection to nature to help him find his ground, no matter where he finds his feet. Al-Karim and I talk about the multicultural history of Kenya and the effects colonialisms had on faith communities and the role they play in people's lives. He recounts the solo camping trip that first brought him into deep connection with nature and how it's become the place he returns to again and again for healing and strength. And he shares his thoughts on how you too can get outside and connect with nature even if you're afraid to take the first step. Because how do you find your ground, no matter where you are? This is his story. I'm Marin Smith, and you're listening to Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek territory in Hamilton, Ontario, and Al-Karim Versi lives on Lekwungen, Songhees, Esquimalt, and Hwasainich territory in Victoria, British Columbia. Curious about whose land you're on? Visit keepingfaithpod.com about for a list of Indigenous mapping resources or get in touch with your local Native Centre or Council. What is giving you hope right now? And is there a story from your life right now that has connected you with your sense of faith or hope? I think there's many things that comes to mind when I think of what gives me hope right now. Some things are fairly simple. Something as simple as like engaging with nature and just mm-hmm. getting out of my head. It just reminds me that, you know, everything is interconnected. And it does revive a sense of, oh, okay, I'm in my own head right now. And I'm probably thinking about something that's very related to the human world. But maybe just taking a walk outside and being in nature reminds me that it's actually so much deeper and so much more connected. Mm -hmm. Um, One particular experience I could probably relate to is I've taken some time off work for just over a year. And I have taken that time to reflect on so many things in my life. And... That experience for me has been the biggest investment into, into really reviving hope on so many different fronts for me because it's given me time to think about so many things that I have, you know, possibly not even had the chance to think about. And for me, that's, that's been really revolutionary for me. So I think I'm probably 
you know, at the end of that phase, I am in getting back into a job market right now. And I am kind of normalizing things, as people would say, you know, in mm -hmm. life. But I feel it's been a journey where I have been really, you know, um, hopeful and full of strength, actually, moving on. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, both of those things, because I think in this COVID-19 pandemic experience, both of the things you mentioned are, are things that I hear reflected from other people that because you can't go out and, and do the whole like restaurant urban life that people are spending so much more time in nature, like mm -hmm. sales of outdoor equipment have been like through the roof this year. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about how people are benefiting from that connection with nature. And then, and then similarly, life has quieted down for so many people because we can't do the things that we used to fill our life with. And so there's time and space to maybe feel some of those deeper things or ask some of those deeper questions. Do you think COVID has, has impacted your experience of that too? I think personally, I, I definitely think the pandemic has had, you know, has had dilapidating effects across the world. It's definitely, you know, brought a lot of thinking towards also what's really important in people's lives and what they've been really allocating their time towards. Also the opportunities of what's possible to work with um, differently. You know, if you look mm -hmm. at the contextual environments people are working in, you know, today, they're working remotely and they're probably more productive. Some experience that I've heard is, you know, people feel that they're actually putting more hours into work because they don't know where to stop. Um, mm. Even though they have the choice and, you know, they can start work whenever they want. It's, it's more or less they're still battling with how much time to still put into work versus other things that are available. But I think it's also changed a lot of mindsets in terms of, you know, lots of reflection. I know personally for me, I've looked back at my work life over the last 15 years and it's had different phases. You know, it's had times where I've traveled a lot and I really enjoyed my work and I felt, you know, a sense of deep connection with my work too, um, especially with the not-for-profit sector that I've been part of. Um, but I also go back to times where I felt I was so deeply involved in my work that I left so many other aspects of my life at bay. One of those examples would be my, you know, my interaction with nature that I grew up with so closely. But there are times of my work life where I felt like I was always putting that as, you know, I'll do it sometime when I have time and that time never comes. Or, you know, times interactions with close friends, you know, keeping relationships and making sure that you're investing your part, your time in these friendships. Um, time with family, you know, making sure that you're still kind of, you know, you're feeding yourself with those elements of, of what gives you, um, you know, lots of satisfaction in life. And I feel that was taken a lot away by, by, by work sometimes. So I think with this pandemic, you know, where people are forced to, okay, you know, you can't go into work now, but you have to deliver or you have to produce or you have to change your lifestyle around it. Um, you're kind of forced to be in the situation where you question, okay, how do I make the best of this? But as you slowly accept that that's a reality, I feel like you also see the opportunities around you and say, this is actually not, not so bad, actually. I feel like I'm spending more time with loved ones. I just feel like I can go out in the backyard and have a call versus being in an office um, yeah. I do miss the occasional interactions with workmates and I do miss, you know, the, the, the small talk with a cup of coffee with some workmates in the kitchen or, you know, in the common room, which I can probably try to still do in a socially distanced way. But 
I think looking at it positively is also, uh, you know, is something that gives a lot of hope that, you know, it's, it's a matter of time and maybe this is a reality for a little while. But how do you make the most of this situation to still be, to still be you know, okay with things? Yeah. And I know you've also just moved to a new place. So you're also in that space of exploring exploring a new place, but also in a different time where exploring maybe looks a little different than what it would have been in our previous world life. Um, what, how have you been adjusting to that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very normal for, you know, there's quite a bit of placement on expectations, you know, when you move to a new place, because so many experiences associated with either, you know, what you've heard of that place or maybe prior visits or experiences you've had with that place or even just being in a journey where you're still reflecting on where you've come from. And, you know, for me personally, um, I've been on the road for maybe a year plus, haven't really had a stable home up until maybe a couple of months ago. So we've been living out of duffel bags, actually just traveling around, you know, moving from Kenya and kind of in between also traveling quite a bit. I also come from a background where, you know, within the not-for-profit sector, it was it was a big ship. It was, you know, based in about 130 countries. And my work involved a lot of travel. Um, on a monthly basis, I was out probably for two weeks. Um, and this was within 20 countries within East and Southern Africa, parts of Europe. And also, you know, aside from just work trips, there was also personal trips, you know, because my partner and I, we love, you know, traveling. We love really just going somewhere and just exploring and just kind of, you know, um, inculcating those trips with parts of nature and, you know, seeing what we can do there. And we learn a lot. But I think we got got into this sort of cycle of just, you know, always trying to fill up your schedule, always trying to see where do you want to go next. And within this move, I think over the last year plus, and especially the last six to six months or so with, with the pandemic happening, I feel like that's, you know, changed that perspective too. When I look back at how much I was traveling, I think I find it hard to recognize that person today. Um, mm -hmm. so it's also slowed me down. But that has also helped me with my transition to a new place because I'm also of the acceptance that I can't wait to kind of get rooted down, to just kind of slow down life, slow down the pace in which I am having all this input um, and be probably more internally reflective. So slow down but reflect on so many aspects of your life and you know i sure do miss traveling i sure do miss you know going back to kenya and being part of that whole um you know vicious cycle of travel but a big part of me also feels like um it's it's you know this is good too and it's different and you always have that you always will always have that it's always part of your experience and there's always key learnings you take from it that you always use in your life ahead and, um, you know, this is now and what's happening now is try to be present and try to also enjoy, enjoy what you have, you know, with this move here and, and with how you're settling in. Um, my perspective as well, I think I, I moved to Canada, you know, from Kenya in 2012. My first trip was, you know, around 2010, I think. Um, and this was here in BC, actually, where I you know, wanted to explore a bit of rock climbing in Squamish and Sycamore. And I was always attracted to Canada just by virtue of the history of so many friends and my relatives who had moved, you know, some 30 years ago, some 20 years ago from East Africa. Um, I think when I moved to Canada in 2012, my mindset was also very different because I felt like there's Kenya and then there's Canada. Mm. And they're vastly different, of course, 
but I always looked at it from a comparative point of view. You know, coming to Canada, I said, well, I have this in Kenya and I don't have it here. And I think with that mindset, it also left me with, well, you're setting yourself up for a comparative and you're always going to fall back on something you've always been comfortable with. But the moment you open up to experience, I felt, then you're opening up to new realities. You're opening up to opportunities that are in front of you. And you'll see them with a bit more of openness. You know, you won't kind of get this sort of a, a prejudgmental attitude towards your experiences, but you go there open with open hands and, you know, whatever comes, you take it as at face value and be, wow, that was great. And I liked it. And I think that shift over the years at the, since 2012 and, you know, coming in and out and also having really great experiences, you know, every time I've come here and gone back. And um, I think it's just sort of prepared me more and more for, for settling in here. And so far, I love it. I love Victoria. We were here four years ago for a road trip. And I remember us saying, you know, if there was one place we wanted to move to, it would be here. And every day being here has been absolutely lovely. And um, yeah, so far, so great. <laughs> so you've mentioned a couple a couple things here. You've mentioned you know, growing up and coming from Kenya, and you've mentioned that you've gone through a lot of changes recently, but over the course of your life, and you've been doing a lot of reflecting on your life recently. So I want to go back a bit right now and look at where you come from as a person and, and what kind of shaped and influenced you on your journey to where you are now. So going back to when you were really young, what was your life like growing up? What were you taught about the world and what were you taught about faith and hope? So I grew up in, in Kenya, which is part of East Africa. And my life in Kenya was absolutely fantastic. I loved every part of it. My childhood was very simple. I think also part of my teens was also very, very simple. Just because I feel life was also simple at the point. Maybe because I was younger or maybe there was... Not too much globalization. Um, capitalism hadn't spread its arms across too badly. <laughs> and um, growing up in Kenya for me was 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 amazing. Um, Kenya is a small country. You know, to give you perspective, it's maybe a sixteenth of the size of Canada. Right. And um, you know, whether you took a flight up north, south, east, or you know, in any direction you came across a variety of cultures. I mean, Kenya alone has more than, you know, 70 plus documented cultures and about 30 plus languages. Within East Africa, you have 150, 60, 70 different sort of cultures and languages. And that's what's documented. So I believe there's a lot more just because, you know, that's been lost in history too. But that just gives you an indication of this melting pot of just so much diversity, so much culture. And with that, I think you also look at so many communities, you know, coexisting together. And yeah, my experience, I think there was just so alive. I always feel like my instincts were, were sharper, you know, living in that part of the world. Um, but also very different to how it is today. I mean, I've seen a change also in the city I grew up in. Um, so Nairobi, which is the capital city of Kenya, if I think back at, you know, when I was in my teens, it felt like it was a lot slower. It felt like people had a lot more time for each other. 
there were certain, you know, examples I think of right now is, you know, someone coming to knock on your door and wants to come in impromptu to meet you in your house. My reaction today would be very different to my reaction when I was, you know, in my teens and I observed my parents would love something like that happening. Mm. Whereas today I would look at it as, oh my God, like we're not prepared for that. Like, no, let's not open the door or something like that, you know, because we're so busy and we're so in that mindset of if we're going to meet someone, we have to schedule them in. Mm. We have to, okay, Tuesday next week between four and five, let's meet. But, you know, when I grew up in Nairobi, we didn't have a phone for, actually, we never had a phone. If anything, we'd probably use my neighbor's call phone or there was probably a street phone somewhere in a corner where if I wanted to meet up with a friend, I would call them and say, hey, let's meet up and, you know, go for this soccer game um, two weeks from now at this time. And we wouldn't communicate for those two weeks, but I knew that I would meet my friend at that specific time at that specific place and we would go ahead and have a great day. And, you know, that was it. So communication was less. I think we were less interactive, but I think it was so meaningful. Mm. It was almost like it was so cherished. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's pretty much how I would explain even my relationship with like my family. Um, you're being so far from them. I feel like when we talk, you know, over a video call, you want to make the most of it. And the conversations are amazing. They're so connecting. They're so like, wow, that was great. And this was really good. But when we're there physically, you don't really see that value coming across as strongly because maybe it's taken for granted that mm, it's there, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot's changed. Um, but growing up there, um, I can also think about, um, I grew up basically following the faith of Islam. Um, and Islam, of course, just like any other monotheistic faith, has got many variations. It's got many sects. Um and there were various communities still believing in Islam, but had different practices, different rituals, different times of prayers, even different mosques. And I think in any one street you would go to, you would find churches, mosques, temples. And um, yeah, I think whoever you met, well, belonged to a community. There were certain areas um, also within the city that you would know, okay, that, you know, that area has members from this community, or this area has members from that community. But I think it's also an offshoot of, you know, the entire uh, segregation that happened during colonization. Yeah. You know, where different communities that came into East Africa, um, like my own family, uh, you know, came in the early 19th century. And um, they were across Tanzania, um, Zanzibar and Kenya. Many people from my community that came from Gujarat, which is a part of East of India, they probably made their way to the south of Africa. Some of them made their way, you know, onto Madagascar and Mauritius. Some of them made their way within East Africa. But it all happened at a time, possibly in the early 19th century to, you know, maybe mid-19th century onwards, depending on when families decided to move and under what circumstances. And, you know, depending on how far back we want to go, I mean, trade existed on the, the Aden Sea and the Indian Ocean, I mean, as far back as 12th century. And, you know, today, Swahili, which is the national language uh, spoken in Kenya and Tanzania, is also spoken as far up north in Oman, which is actually baffling. But if you look back at history, it just means that there was so much movement of people, so many, so much movement of, you know, different communities across from different countries. And when you look at it today, you can just imagine that amalgamation of just different cultures, different communities, right from the infrastructural setup of different cities, whether they were in coastal towns or whether they were in inland towns. It's all really sort of molded by history and the flow of that. So 
growing up, you know, believing in Islam and, you know, trying to follow the rituals that I was supposed to follow. Um, well, let's see for the time in my life where maybe I was following it because I had the guidance of my parents. I probably just, you know, did it because I had to. But I mean, I, I tried my best to believe in some of those rituals. I tried my best to kind of, okay, if I meant to do this and this, and it's supposedly supposed to lead to this, I, I will do it. I will go in, you know, with all my heart and I will try and I'll do it. But the one, you know, I think the one thing that only stuck with me throughout practicing all my rituals was the community service. Mm -hmm. So if you look back at, you know, communities, I feel, you know, I look at, let's say my parents' time, I can understand why community to them meant so much because it was seen as a form of safety. It was seen as a form of, you know, we stick together because we'll get through this. And because, you know, so many events happened between, you know, right from colonization to even, you know, perceived independence of countries to coups, you know, you look down south, you're looking at the apartheid, you look at, you know, the genocide that happened in Rwanda, you look at the civil crisis that took place in Somalia and Somaliland, you look at the um, extradition of Asians that took place in Uganda, you look at the different coups that took place in Kenya with every election. I mean, all these events, they make people more resilient, yes, but they also make people stick to each other. Community is so important doing that for support. So whereas I may struggle right now to understand, sure, it's community and we stick together. But I also felt at that point in my life, it was creating a bubble for me mm -hmm. where I was not able to interact as openly as freely. And always felt like, you know, there was always going to be a filter between, you know, interaction with other communities. And for me, I didn't want that. I really found it so hard to believe that that, that was how life was. Yeah. At the same time, there's all these complexities of, you know, different, different cultures trying to, you know, really push for their value systems to push for the ways the traditions are, you know, supposed to be respected and held. And then this whole complex, you know, paradigm of how Kenya was also like the hub for the United Nations and international development and all these agencies come in left, right and center for continuing humanitarian reliefs, but again, stemming from a very colonial point of view and all these discrepancies that were just so visible you know you almost kind of knew that what your place was as you lived mm -hmm. and I think it was very hard for me to to accept that that was that that was fair it wasn't fair of course it wasn't and um yeah I think I think when I look back at let's say the stories my grandmother told me or my you know stories my granddad would tell me or even my parents, I want to look at their history of how they moved and how their faith was so important to them and they got so much strength from it. Mm -hmm. I, I feel that energy. I feel that that was important to them. I can see what it meant to them. So I definitely would say, you know, it's not really a linear question of, you know, did I just not believe it and I just wanted to believe in something else? I think I would say just serve, serves them for what they take from it. Mm. For what they believe in it, it serves them. I think everyone has needs and, you know, if this is what was actually able to meet their needs, then I say that it got them through a pretty rough time and, you know, their resilience has probably been, has probably been helped by it. You know, they're able to get through it because of it. And, you know, I will, I will look back at times when I would meditate, for instance, I would say certain meditative, you know, rituals um, that were also embedded in the practice of Islam. And I would say maybe they gave me peace, but I still question, did they give me peace because, those are the exact rituals that I said, 
or did it give me peace because it's just the act of meditation? It's the act of actually saying something and getting out of, you know, a certain space in your head and, and maybe being more open to just, just having this flow, like it just opened up a gate for you. Whereas, you know, I believe in any meditative practices will get you there. So also getting to that sort of understanding that is it this really or is it just the practice? And if it means the practice, it means I could adopt that practice to what makes me feel good, to what makes me feel like I'm getting what I need. So going back to what I took from going to the mosque every Friday and, you know, engaging in all the community events, I would say one of the greatest things that impacted my life growing up in Kenya would be the community service um, so I grew up in the scouting movement from a very young age, mm -hmm. the scouting movement, which was amazing because, you know, part of the scouting movement was very highly involved in helping communities, uh, either building, you know, civic responsibilities with other youth, helping out with initiatives that were either to help the environment or helping impoverished communities or helping the elderly, doing things like that for me was always so satisfactory. Mm. It also what informed me to think that, you know, if I were to get into anything in, in my career, um, it would have to be rooted down to actually humanitarian efforts or, you know, adventure therapy, something that was helping where I could really see my efforts sort of connecting to, to helping people or helping, you know, anything in nature too. So the community that I was with actually had their own, internal outdoor leadership program um, that was there purely voluntary but it was you know it was a great curriculum that was that was built to actually engage youth of all ages to come together and learn a lot of um, a lot of skills and these skills were done you know in a classroom approach but they were also done outdoors so we'd always go you know for amazing trips up you know Mount Kenya or we'd go up rock climbing or we'd have all these amazing hikes but all these excursions were included aspects of community service. They included, you know, a lot of education on value systems, included a lot of education on self-exploration, you know, getting all these emerging leadership skills and, you know, building, um, building strength. You know, you were able to express yourself in public. That was a great skill. You were able to actually, you know, figure out a complex problem with a group of, you know, young people around you really made me feel you know like i like i was um i was confident i was able to take on everything and that built a very big part of my life aside from just the formal education that i received but had i not been part of this community i'm not sure i would have had an end towards maybe this experience so some other community service that i would engage in was sometimes after you know some of the the functions we would have in the mosque there would be meals provided you know to the community and some of these meals were provided to almost like 5000 people mm -hmm. just to you know, give you the magnitude of the number of people that would sometimes come for these events um or there would be celebrated events you know and and there would be music festivals and but around all that there was a designated and dedicated team of volunteers in so many different departments you know um, so I volunteered for a bunch of departments, I think, over those years. And I think it became, it became apparent to me that my main, my main connection to community or, or to even to, to, to the practice was really community service. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, and, and that sort of fed my, my need for, yeah, I'm part of this community, but this is what I take from it that makes the most sense. So there were times, especially when I was younger, my parents would, 
you know, make sure that I was in the mosque and I was, you know, seated nicely with my legs folded and I was closing my eyes and I was following the rituals. But in my head during that time, I couldn't wait to get out to just be part of what was happening after. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, there were parts of, you know, some of those rituals, especially um, some of the um, the rituals were important to me. I, I, I did get a lot from it. I think it made me really think about a lot. But I think I was just more interested in the community service, you know, because for me, I always thought of life as, you know, you know, deep down what is right and what is wrong. Like it morally comes to you, you know, if you're going to do something that you feel is wrong, something inside you makes you feel like it's wrong. And I feel like how hard can it be really to morally move in this world, knowing that you're doing something wrong or I mean, mistakes happen. Yes. But there's also, you know, you consciously go back to it and you, you're able to think about it. But yeah, that was just basically how I thought of life at the time. And of course, in my younger days, I couldn't really have the autonomy to really strongly say, this is what I want to do. But at some point, I did have a really strong conversation with my parents about it. and um, But I did it in a very respectful way. Yeah, well, I'm curious because you've kind of talked about yourself as in kind of like an intersection point between a lot of things, right? Like, you've talked a lot about the history of where you live and, and the history of your family and the culture you come from. And then you've talked about kind of all of the different cultures that you were surrounded with in your life. Um, but then as a young person, as you've also mentioned, there's this drive forward of wanting to like explore what's next and explore what's beyond your own community. So I'm curious as to how you found yourself within kind of that whirlwind of all of those different things, all of those different influences and, and where you really started to come into your, your own sense of self in the middle of all of that. Mm -hmm. I think um, maybe two things come to mind. So I think, you know, when I naturally found my flow into what I wanted to be part of and what I didn't, I find myself surrounded by people who thought the same way. Um, and that's where I met some of my best friends. That's where I met some of really close, you know, community members that um, till today, I mean, we're in touch and we believe in the same things. And we really focus on what means to us the most. But I think in terms of, you know, getting getting real exposure to to probably what, what has influenced what I am today and probably what I, the values I hold, I would say is when I, when I joined the organization I worked for, for about 15 years. So I, I, um, I'm a chartered accountant by profession. And um, it's something I knew that I should become when I was at the age of 12. But that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. It was a dream of my father, actually. Um, something that he was not able to do. Not for lack of his own abilities, but just a very tough life. But I think he thought he was the best and most ideal thing for for his kids. So my sister is also a chartered accountant. So, it's mm. you know, but anyway, we, you know, the moment I, you know, finished my chartered accountancy and uh, was able to, you know, apply for work in an area that I wanted to, I, uh, I looked for work within the humanitarian sector. So I joined a not-for-profit organization. And I think this organization, you know, especially now that it was a regional hub based in Nairobi, by virtue of being a regional hub, it was very diverse. It was a very diverse environment. They were, you know, workmates from all over the continent. Uh, and for me to really then get insight on, wow, okay, 
this is now what is existing beyond Kenya, Tanzania, beyond Uganda, places that I probably, before my formal working life, did not have much, you know, much information on. I mean, I did hear about it, but I think also back then the world was a bigger place in terms of, you know, not being as connected with technology. Um, but just, you know, joining this organization and just sort of learning different cultures, learning different values, appreciating where people have come from and their stories, it made me, you know, really appreciate, of course, my own history. It made me look into it more and more to mm-hmm. sort of self-identify. Um, I mean, the way I express today about, for instance, how I feel about my faith, at that time, I would possibly express it with a little bit more of, you know, still unsurety, maybe a bit of anger, you know, because I think that was just where I was at. I was still trying to figure things out. And I was wondering, how do I get through this? But I think those experiences for me at work, you know, working with a diverse team and actually even getting to travel actually quite a lot. Um, I remember my first trip, you know, when I joined SOS, um, the organization I worked for, it was to Ethiopia. And Ethiopia has a very strong, strong culture. It's actually a fascinating country. Fascinating. And I thought, you know, traveling just an hour and a half north of my country, I mean, how different would it be? How, you know, of course it would be different, yeah. right? <laughs> it almost felt like I was somewhere else, but I was so excited because I just wanted to learn. I wanted to observe. I wanted to be part of it. And I think those experiences or like, you know, when I would go all the way, you know, west to Ghana or Nigeria, which, you know, there again was totally different. When I would say I come from Kenya, they would say, that's not possible. You know, you're not black. And sure, you know, that's their experience because people that moved during that time never moved inland to the west of Africa. Um, they only moved to the east and the southern parts of Africa. So for them as well, I feel it was also very informative because then they were able to see, oh, yes, that's the history that took place, you know, 100 plus years ago, um, you know, from the east and south. It's almost like, um, yeah, it's how do I think of it? I mean, in perspective, maybe here in Canada, I would think of it as like, you know, when you're crossing interprovince. You know, as different as they are, and maybe, who knows, more and more, it seems like they're almost operating like different countries. But it's it's something like that, where within a small span of space, you're looking at just so many different boundaries and just so many different understandings of, of just, you know, who's from where and how's, how things are different. But just having that experience, I think, you know, and being with them for more than 15 years, it really opened up my world. It really opened up my my thinking. I think if you asked me how big the world was when I was, you know, 18 or 20 versus how big the world is right now, the world is very small now. Mm. But that's also because in many realms, it's just different with technology. But also, I feel like the accessibility is is just, um, it's more, you know, you have a lot more accessibility now than you had probably back in the day. Yeah, yeah. You seem like you had, in everything that you said from a very young age, a curiosity about the world and how things worked and all of the differences that you were coming in contact with. Is that, is that how you felt? Do you remember that sense of curiosity? I did. I did. That's so interesting. You know, you reminded me of a time when I went for a yoga retreat. This was a few years ago. And at the end of a retreat, they gave us uh, really nice wooden key rings. And, um, you know, the, the, the wooden key rings were, were basically carved with a one-word personality identification. And my identification came out as curiosity, <laughs> which is so interesting. 
possibly ask too many questions. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. And I sometimes catch myself and say, oh, man, like I shouldn't ask too many questions. But I also think, you know, you learn so much when you ask within limits. And I think, yeah, from a very young age, I was always very curious. I would always ask so many questions. I also remember, like, you know, when it comes to also questions about faith. I mean, I grew up, you know, during that time more than now. There was, you know, more resistance if you asked questions. Mm. You know, if you ask, but how do you know? You weren't there yeah, serious ramifications. I was I was kicked out of class so many times um, when I asked questions. When I would just want to know, but all I wanted to know was just you know, it's not. I'm not yet satisfied with the answer. I just wanted to know more and more. Um, but I think yeah, along my experiences, like I've just asked so many questions along the way, and um, I'm always curious to know more. It doesn't just stop at because you know this is how it is and this is how it's done. For me, it's, you know, okay, what informs that? What's the flexibility within that? And, you know, did you ever think about this? Or is there a chance this would change if this happened? Or, yeah. So I've, I've definitely been a curious person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, it's a faith in, in questions, a faith in where questions will lead you almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So with all of this, where do you feel that you've landed now in terms of your own personal sense of of faith or hope? Where have you landed from all of the different influences that were a part of your life? Mm -hmm. I think where I'm now with my understanding of, you know, what I believe in is I believe in nature. I truly believe that, you know, we don't exist in isolation, that there's this whole interconnectivity of energy, of, you know, interdependency of synergy that exists. When people tell me sometimes that, oh man, our world is crazy. I say, well, when you say our world, you mean like maybe our human world. But when I look outside, I see also many things are adapting, many things are thriving. So I look at it maybe from a perspective of, you know, that we're not alone. And, you know, as much as we may have our plan, I feel that there is something higher, something more deeper, something that is more powerful something that actually has the control that's um that's at play and you know you have to just uh sort of ride that wave uh knowing that you don't have to really know everything and it's okay to to kind of just anticipate and you know just see what's unfolding and and feel what's the right thing to do um my experiences i think you know up until now many of my amazing experiences have been in nature whether it's been you know expeditions that i used to guide up various mountains in East Africa, interactions, you know, on wilderness safaris, even just my own solo interactions in nature and places that I used to go to that used to just give me all the answers I wanted. One of the places I can remember is, um, it's a nice little outcrop of rock called Lukenya that was, you know, not too far from the main city in Kenya. And I went there ever since I was a child. And it's it's beautiful because it had all these beautiful crags in this one area that was elevated where you would see, sometimes see the peak of Kilimanjaro at sunrise from there. And sometimes you would see Mount Kenya as well. And you would see these giant plains and lots of wildlife. And 
you could be rock climbing and above you you'll find a troop of baboons just there or look behind you and you have a whole herd of giraffe and zebra and it was just such a lovely location that was so accessible but yet not too many people came to it and i always found that i was getting so much from it because i would always go there with you know a heavy mind and sometimes i would just come back feeling like I know I know what I needed to do. And when I would, you know, think about that, I say, why why do I feel great being there? Why do I feel like when I connect with nature, it gives me my answers? Well, simply because I believe that when you're part of it, there's something happening. There's an exchange of some sort. Just as people tell me that trees communicate, then what stops me from believing that if you're part of nature, that there is something shifting in you because of it. There's some transfer of energy. There's some... Mm. Something being lifted off your shoulders, perhaps, even though, you know, that might be strange to believe. But it's something that I'm, I'm open to. And maybe the openness to it maybe is the shift in mindset. So maybe I'm helping myself by thinking like that. You know, it's still a question. But, um, <laughs> but maybe it's, but that, it works for me, you know. So I, I always look for places like that that I can go to. But nature for me has really shifted uh, who I am. And wherever I am, I always try to inculcate that as part of my daily life. As simple as it is, it doesn't have to be, you know, days out there, but it could be even be 10 minutes, or five minutes of just breathing out there and just knowing that, yeah, that feels great. And it gives me hope. It restores, um, you know, certain values. It, it, it takes away certain doubts that I have. And yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you just talked about it now, but you've talked about nature since the beginning of this conversation. And and so I'm curious about where that love of nature came from for you. What, what was the landscape like where you grew up and, and how, how did that love and that interaction develop for you as a young person? Um, I think my love for nature, I mean, started from a very young age. And I think a lot of my experiences, a lot of the teachings that came from the experiences um, I always reflect on them. And of course, the learnings are so different depending on how old you are and what your experiences were, what you were going through in your life at the time too. But for me, the connection was always like I got the lessons and I learned a lot from the experiences in nature. And those learnings probably say, you know, made me who I am in terms of my personality, um, my take on life, also just how I, you know, deal with certain challenges in my life, maybe even both in my professional as well as my personal life, you know. I feel like it all adds to who I am. Um, Kenya has a diverse landscape. Um, I mean, as with many other countries that are, you know, there. When I tell people that whether you're looking for a mountain, you're looking for a desert, you're looking for lakes, or you want to just hang out by the beach, you can find all of that in Kenya. And they say, what? You know, that's impossible. How do you have all of those things, you know? And I also say, well, and we probably also would have had Kilimanjaro if it wasn't gifted by the queen to to uh, one of the um, colonels in Germany. And they laugh about it. But it's just, you know, it's a light joke to just say that, of course, at the end of the day, these are all borders. But, you know, there's so much that exists within that within that region. And it's actually not too far. And it's so wild, you know, not to say that, you know, other countries don't have the same too. But I think for me, my experience is being there and just having the opportunity to always interact with nature and always having to, you could always go out there and you could always, you know, spend time with friends and you can always, you know, it was always accessible for me. Uh, there were no limitations. And I spent a lot of time in there. So my experiences in nature actually have made me who I am. 
yeah. I just also, you know, when I traveled a lot with work, I would always try to make some some time after what I had to go for to actually, you know, learn more about the culture, visit locations that just weren't on official maps or on official travel uh, advisories. But, um, you know, really try to just be, spend time there and really just try to integrate and learn a lot. And um, I think just the culmination of just so many of those experiences for me just made me more and more, you know, sure about, you know, how I feel about being in nature and and how it's just such an integral part of my life, uh, you know, moving on. Yeah. Is there a particular trip or a particular experience that you find yourself continually going back to that still maybe gives you new lessons or learning or growth even now? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's something I, I think about quite often even being here. I remember one of my trips um, it was actually an outward-bound mountain school course. It spanned about 17 days. And um, this was actually in the year 2000. So it was towards the end of the year. And, of course, there was this whole hype of, you know, it's change of the millennia. So it was a big way to end the year. So this trip, actually, um, I signed up for it. And I knew it was a 17-day course um, that was broken down into three different phases. The first phase was going to be, you know, a variety of high ropes courses, team building, um, team leadership, as well as some, you know, skills taught on navigation and wilderness first aid and campcraft, leave no trace. Um, so I wanted to refresh in a lot of that. And I, I knew, wow, this is going to be amazing and I want to go for it. And it was, you know, a big team that was there it was almost 60 to 80 people coming from different parts of the country, but also, you know, coming from different countries too. So Outward Bound Mountain School is a pretty big name out there. And, you know, their courses are actually really amazing. And um, for me, just, you know, signing up for it, not knowing what to expect. Well, knowing a little bit of what to expect, but just going in there. I think there were so many activities and there's just so much team spirit that was fostered through getting uh, going through all those activities that for me it really stood out as one of the best experiences I had um so the first you know phase which is about 6 days or so was held at the mountain school so they had this amazing facility big trees many acres of just space with just wilderness that we had our classes in you know and these were outdoor classes as well as some that were done using a classroom approach um, they had these obstacle courses and uh, high ropes courses that would really give you this adrenaline rush and really push you to your limits, both, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally. And what I liked about their excursions also or their programs is that there was always a tie-in to a debrief that brought you to maybe parts of your life that you could relate a challenge to. So, for instance, you know, there was one course which was uh, more or less like a, almost like a canyon swing, you know. And after you do that activity, you know, we would regroup and debrief and, you know, the team leaders there would lead us through certain aspects of our life, maybe where we have encountered feelings of fear or feelings of, you know, not being able to get through certain challenges and what was, what was going through our mind, what are the steps we took to make us feel better. And, you know, when going through something that connects you like that with your realities in life, I feel like it also then some point in your future, when you go through some feelings like that, you look back at that experience and say, I can do it, or this is possible. You know, that's just one example. But there's so many different, so many different assignments, so many different uh, programs that, you know, I did that gave me that feeling at the end. Um, the second part of it was actually more intense, which included one part of it was actually um, 
you had to stay two solo nights in a forest. And this was a forest that was really wild. There were hyenas, there were, you know, venomous snakes and, um, you know, all sorts of things that you had to really be careful about. But what I liked about it was it was it was two nights where, you know, you were given one matchstick. You had a sleeping bag, you had a tarp, you had two biscuits and you had a 250 milliliters of orange juice. Wow. And you were spending nights out there and you were told take a diary and a pen or take you know something where you can write your thoughts and initially i remember saying oh wow i was really enjoying this up until now but <laughs> now two days of solo night like i feel like i was getting to know so many of my friends here i feel like i was really looking forward to you know the next um active adventure you know so what is this about but that experience alone for me, I think, is one of the ones I will always look back on to say that was that was something amazing because it almost just brought me to a standstill. You know, you're literally sitting on your sleeping bag. Well, you hide your food in your sleeping bag because, you know, the troop of baboons around you will grab it if you don't. Um, you just hear the sounds of the forest in the night. And you can hear the hyenas crying and laughing in the distance. And you can almost hear the roars of some lions down in the Kajiado Plains, um, which is very close to a national park called Amboseli. But just being in the dark, you don't have a flashlight. You know, many people missed out their, their single matchstick to light a fire. Some were lucky. Some were clever where they split the matchstick into two and are able to have fires for both nights. That was pretty amazing. But, you know, it's also like this minimalist of what's possible. Some, you know, put their tarp under their sleeping bag because they felt that they didn't want the scorpions or anything else coming into the sleeping bags. But they got wet at night, whereas some put their tarps on top of their sleeping bags and were dry for two days. So you learn so many things. But I think during those two days, I, I really wrote a lot of reflections of my life mm. because you simply were just confined to the space that you were put in. And because you were, you know, I didn't cover this, but we were led to this one particular spot with a blindfold and you were taken there in the night. Wow. And you know that feeling of even when you check into a hotel, but you check in in the late evening hours or you get to a campsite, but it's already 10 p.m. There's this feeling inside you that you don't know what your location looks like. Yes. It'd be nice if you got there in the afternoon so we can take a little walk and see what our Airbnb <laughs> looks like or see what the environment looks like because we'll sleep better, you know? So similarly... It was part of the assignment, I guess. But getting there blindfolded, where your instructor just leads you there. And when he taps you on your back, you remove your blindfold. And you're surrounded by this bush in the middle of the night. You know, I mean, sorry, in the late evenings of the night. And you, only, you, you, know, you have just maybe a little bit of daylight before you can really figure out where you want to put things in and where you, how you want to set up your, you know, your, your bed for the next two nights. So the day is really, you know... You were figuring out your environment and your radius around where you were staying. And there was just so much to, so much to learn and so much to reflect on. Um, but you were really sitting with yourself. So things that I probably wouldn't think about on a day-to-day -day basis where I would just avoid them because I, I can, mm -hmm. I couldn't then. So I was really reflective on so many things in my life and almost you know, just jotted down so many things that I wanted, so many things that I saw myself doing, so many things I wanted to be part of, so many things that I felt like I, I, I needed to, to break down in my life. So, yeah, I always look back at those experiences and, you know, and maybe I thought about solo night because maybe also during this pandemic, I feel like a lot of people are alone. You know, they're yeah. spending so much time to themselves. So that reflective, you know, that sort of scope for reflection is there and it's really important.
So coming out of it, we all had to share around a fire two days later. And wow, we gave each other hugs like we haven't seen each other for months, you know? Because you're like, first of all, I'm alive, which is good. There were a few casualties in terms of, you know, bites and bruises and a few, you know, who weren't very lucky with safari ants, for example, or, but everybody shared what they, what they were thinking about and how they thought about this experience before doing it and after. And yeah, it was actually a huge change. A lot of my friends that I'm in touch with who were part of that, that course, we still talk about that. We still talk about how those reflections still help us, you know, today in our lives. And the third phase of that course was a climb up Kilimanjaro, which was fantastic. Yeah. So that, that, you know, that course for me was something I always look back as like that really helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like from, you know, the very beginning for you, nature was a place where you both learned to overcome challenge and also a place where you went to process your feelings or to process your experiences and it had that that ability to hold both of those things for you is that how you feel about it now too absolutely that's absolutely true and i mean when you look at changing landscapes i think you know here in victoria i'm still trying to figure out exactly those spots mm. but already just being out in nature and you know when i go down to boulder by the beach or i go for really nice you know hikes and trails that are around here i i already start to feel that too I already feel that sense of identity and connection. Um, so I think, yeah, that's that's definitely it. It just gives me so much. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a bit about just now about how like you're learning the landscape of where you live. And you talked at the beginning of our conversation about, you know, all the travel that you did through work. And then, you know, the original time when you moved to Canada back in 2012 has connecting with nature been an important part of those processes for you and like coming to a new place and, and trying to find yourself and feel center and grounded? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think because, you know, my experiences in nature and, you know, just having what I had back in Kenya and probably how prominent it was in my life, how frequently it was, you know, available and how it was always my go-to probably every weekend and sometimes if I could, sometimes on weekdays too, um, there was always places that I would go to and, you know, multiple different locations. And moving here, I think, you know, aside from, you know, just really knowing that any change in life takes time and that as you settle in with big changes in your life, you can't really dive into doing all the things you want to do, but there's certain things you need to fulfill first. And, you know, as you move into getting more and more grounded and getting the things you need, you're able really to enjoy them. So it's not really a checkbox where you feel, okay, moving to a new place, I need to get all these things all at once, but it's more or less, you know, it does come at the time when it's best and you're just open to it. Um, I remember certain places I visited for the first time in Kenya and maybe my relationship with them wasn't as strong to begin with, but I think over experiences and just knowing that it was there, you become comfortable. You almost feel like you're accepted in nature too. It's a two-way mm. relationship. Um, and I think it's taken time. And I think also just understanding that it's just purely different, but it's, it's great. 
You know, it's just different. It's not a comparative, but it's just different. And the moment you open up yourself to that, you start to appreciate what's different here. You start to see different forms of wildlife. You start to see different kinds of, you know, uh, changes happening. I mean, one thing for sure here is the whole seasonal variation comes to just so many amazing things. And that's something that I would not see very clearly back in Kenya. You know, as much as we have short and long rainy seasons and hot and cold times of the year, but you do not see the shifts as, as much as here, of course, you know. So appreciating that and coming into it with a mindset of just it's different and over time you will find your go-to spots. And over time, you know, as you get to explore more, you also develop a sense of belonging. And of course, within Canada, you know, the massivity of this country, you know, it's one third the size of the entire continent of Africa. So... Sometimes, you know, when I speak to my partner about, wow, it's so different even compared to Ontario. And I say, yes, of course, it's massive. You know, um, driving from Toronto to Victoria is as, is as much as driving from Nairobi to Cape Town with six countries in between. You know, just to give you a perspective, of course, it's going to be different. Of course, it's going to have so many you know, it can't be the same across. But because it's so different, I think maybe this the element of choice in your mind is also a bit more spoiled because you're like, you can move everywhere. You know, you can move to wherever you want. But I think wherever you move, there's nature there. There's something there for you. It will appeal to you if you give it a chance, if you are open to it and you spend more time in it. So I think, you know, being here in Victoria for me resonates very well because it's close to mountains. There's great crags around the beaches that you can boulder on and play around on. There's really nice, beautiful trails. The fact that there are inland lakes, as well as being on an island, there's just a whole different horizon having the ocean around, you know. So I feel um, I would get what I want from here. I look back and I think back, yeah, I miss Kenya some days. You know, I wake up feeling, wow, it would be great to, you know, camp out and hear the sounds of the night in, in Kenya. But I also feel like I'm really enjoying this too. And this is really lovely. So yeah, it's it's a shift, but I think it's also that it's it's always going to be there. And, you know, I know, you know, once things calm down a bit, I will be able to travel across and still enjoy, you know, parts of Kenya and East Africa. But I will always also miss parts of Canada when I'm away, which is also what I was feeling, actually, you know, while I was moving to and fro, because when you're in one place, you feel, whoa, you're missing this other place. But when you go back, there's certain elements of the place you just came from that you're like, I appreciate this list of things that I don't get here. So it's almost like, you know, as much as travel is great, the travel bug is, is good sometimes. You know, some people call it a curse because it just destroys your mind in terms of just deciding where you feel a sense of you want to be, you know. Yeah. So I'm curious, how would you encourage someone who is maybe reluctant to get outdoors or maybe has a lot of fear about connecting with nature for various reasons? How would you encourage them to take that first step to find a way to to connect? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great question for anyone who's, you know, who's trying to access the outdoors, but probably doesn't know where to start or how to do it. Um, I think when someone's identified their comfort zone or, you know, where they're, where they decide, you know, that doesn't work for me. Or, you know, if I was to go camping, it has to be in this way. Or if I was to go for a hike, um, how long is it? Or how, what's the elevation like? What's the surrounding like? You know, there's all these questions. But 
the bottom line of all that really is there are some needs you're expressing that you want assurance around. And I think one great way to explore is to really identify a sense of community around, you know, people that are in the, that are maybe around you that are possibly accessing the sites you want to go to. So joining, you know, small clubs or small communities, depending on what activity you want to do, you really get to meet people. And I think, you know, it's a shift because your first experience, you know, may start off feeling like, oh man, why did I sign up for this? But then at the end of it, you go back and it may not yet hit. You still feel like, oh man, thank God, I'm ahead. You know, we're going back now. Like that was quite a day. But then, you know, you'll get home and you'll feel like you want to jump in the shower and throw all your stuff in the, you know, in the, in the, in the washing machine and be done with that experience. And, you know, feel like you can make that cup of tea and go to your couch and feel like, oh, okay, um, on to next things or, you know. But two days later, something like clicks, you know, you feel like, wow. I really kind of missed that. That was actually quite nice. Those experiences were really, hmm, I could do that again, but maybe. So I think there's a step-to-step approach and, you know, people's experiences are different and, and how they portray their experiences is also different in different times. Um, but I would say the best way for someone to really kind of take a step out there is, you know, small steps. If you're not used to maybe long hikes, definitely don't sign up for a super long one where you will come home feeling, yes, this is why I don't do this. But if you're feeling like you want to go for a small hike, try identify people that you can go with. And when you identify people you can go with, I mean, learn a bit more about getting that assurance from that person. For instance, you don't get lost. You don't want to, you want to have some sort of assurance around, yeah, I'm going to be safe. It's going to be good. It takes this long. I'll be back by this time. This is what I need. It's pretty simple. And as you work your way through those experiences, I think, you know, you can look at a bit more of longer excursions. You can look at, uh, you know, a bit more of challenge too. Um, yeah. And I think also, you know, that's a great way to start. Um, there are a lot of people, I think, that are looking for that too. So sometimes I think when people say, I'm not sure if I want to reach out because I'm not sure what the perception is. Of who wants to go with me? Or who will take me, you know? But you'd be surprised because sometimes, you know, when people reach out and say, hey, I want to climb. I've had this happen several times where I've had someone say, look, I, I really want to climb Mount Kenya. I've never climbed a mountain before, but um, what do you recommend? And I would tailor make this expedition in a way that, you know, was diverting away from the standard four or five days. And I'd make it seven days, but I'd make it more comfortable. And along the process of planning this, you'd find that, this person would actually have other people reaching to this person saying, yeah, here you're climbing this and I, I would be interested to join. And before you know it, one person has turned into 10 people and these are 10 people <laughs> who are climbing this mountain for the first time. But then obviously, you know, a four or five day expedition or a six or seven day expedition is like, wow, that's a pretty big jump for a start, but they still go ahead and do it. And when they come back, I mean, you can see the transformation. You can see the mm-hmm. changes happening. And, you know, I see people still telling me, you know, I climbed back in 2007 with you. And I still think of that expedition it was amazing. It gave me so much. But I think, you know, when you spend time in nature and when you have experiences in nature, you're also real. You know, if someone asked me, you know, if you were faced with a bear, what are your choices of how you would react? I'd say just be one way because I'm real at that time. You know, it's just an experience. And I think when you face experiences in, in nature, you you can't be somebody else. Mm. You can canvas at some point and, you know, but I think as you get deeper and deeper into experience, your real self comes out. And when your real self comes out, I think that's the best because you really get to know people. You really also get to connect more because people really can see through all, you know, the 
the perceived filters that you know sometimes people feel that they have to have and yeah it's a more real experience and i think when you go back you know you feel like you want more of it yeah that's beautiful uh thanks for sharing that <laughs> So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways, as an allegiance or duty that you have to something, as a belief or trust in something greater than yourself, or as something you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each part of that definition to you as a question. So for you in your life, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to? I would say that I have a, a strong duty to, to my footprint. Um, and this is my footprint, you know, with respect to the natural environment and maybe also with the moral beliefs in the community that I live in. It just means that in every interaction I have, um, in anything that I'm doing, if I'm, if I'm conscious of the way I'm doing it, if I'm mindful of whether my actions are actually going to cause more harm, or whether they're going to cause greater good. Um, I think just being you know, conscious of that as I move along in whatever direction or eat in whatever interaction I'm having um, you know, with the environment or also in contributing to like moral beliefs in the community that I live in. Yeah, I think that's what I have. I think I, I feel I have a moral duty towards that. I feel closely responsible to that because I also feel like when you're embedded in that, there's also a return for you because you're part of it. And I think, you know, I want to be part of something that's greater. So I think that's, yeah, that's how I'd relate to my, my allegiance. My allegiance is definitely to, to the way I carry myself around considering the environment and community. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you believe in or trust that is greater than yourself? I think I trust the universe, you know, I mean, I trust that definitely we have nothing under control, you know, that's definitely true. Um, but I think when you also believe that you have nothing under your control, then there's also a bit of relief and acceptance of what comes. And I think, you know, as much as um, sometimes, you know, I feel like I need a plan. I think planning is good. I think it's good to know where your sense of direction is. I feel like it's good to know what you want to do and what you want to get done. And a lot of it can be, you know, broken down objectively. And there's, you know, things you can put in and know things you will get out of. But I think in terms of a bigger picture, um, sometimes people get caught up a lot in mapping out the future and they get really worried about it. And I think when you just trust that there's only a certain element of it that you can contribute to, but you can be positive and assuring that if you're putting everything into it, then the direction you want to go, you know, if you have a mindset of abundance into saying, I really want something and you put some good energy out into it, I think it'll come to you or maybe it'll come to you differently or maybe something else will come to you. But I think 
that experience too, at some point later, will be your learning lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be something where you look back and write, oh, maybe that was great for me. But that's just a design of life. But I think if I look back at everything I wanted and I look back at mapping out my life, I, I know that whatever came, came and I'm here today. And, you know, there's also some joy in just riding the wave and, and just playing your part in it as, as best you can. So, yeah, I, f- I have full trust in, in just the universe and just um, the shifts that are taking place in many ways, probably majority we may never understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And what I'm trying to get at with this question is that I, I think all of us have something at our core that we feel like we know, even if it doesn't make logical sense. Mm-hmm. I think it's very much related to what I said earlier in terms of just like trust in the universe. Um, but maybe I'll just expand a little bit in terms of just, you know, what I know for sure is in any situation, um, and this is something I believe in, um, in any interaction with anyone, I think there's always an expression of needs. And some of these needs are hidden. Mm. They don't come out in the best way sometimes, but there's always needs. Um, People communicate to each other because there are some needs. And approaching any situation with any prejudgment or approaching any situation where you're already planning what to say next before you listen to what's being, you know, what's being said to you, um, you miss out on catching those needs. And I feel like the greatest conflicts that we are facing today, you know, in many aspects to maybe the conflicts that, you know, are faced on a day-to-day basis, maybe in household conflicts or, you know, at work or beat whatever. I mean, a lot of them really are people expressing needs. They're coming from different experiences. They're coming from different needs of assurance. But what I know for sure is where you approach anything with openness or, you know, you set your mind to do so and you try your best to, I think you really can pick out the needs and you're able to actually maybe empathize even in the most horrible circumstances of which those needs are being addressed. But when you're able to show empathy, I think there's a lot of healing because many a time I think people just want to be heard. Yeah. And for me, that's really, you know, I come from, I come from a culture where, you know, perhaps because of my experiences, because of just so much happening at the same time, I was always after finding solutions all the time, you know, if someone expressed how they were feeling, I would always say, what do we do? Like, we have to do this or we have to, you know, maybe we can try this. But I, I've realized more and more that's just because that's just inculcated in how I grew up and the kind of environment I lived in. You know, you didn't go for something, you never got it. You didn't move, you get hurt. You know, it was very um, vibrant, very chaotic in that sense. I mean, I miss chaos. But um, I'll tell you, having some time to reflect on this and just also looking back at so many experiences I've had, I, I would say that, you know, when you can show empathy, I think it spreads. I think when people are hurt and their needs are heard and they're able to express how they feel and you know that their feelings are valid and you know that they're able to actually find some healing through that. I think that energy just spreads across. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're, you're passing on that. That's something I strongly believe. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it, it totally does. That was, yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. 
So I want to ask you about your spiritual practice now. So is there a practice that you have in your life that you do on a regular basis? It could be daily or weekly or monthly or yearly, but something that you do that connects you to your sense of faith or hope. Yeah, I think one one of the practices is one that gives me a good sense of grounding. And this particular practice literally gives me grounding because I conduct it barefoot. could be anything from stepping out into my backyard um, early in the morning and walking on, you know, the wet grass with you just bare feet. Or it could be something where I decide to drive out somewhere to a hiking trail and hike out for about five or eight clicks just barefoot in the middle of the forest. Or It just depends on where and when I feel like I need less or more of it. But I think it really grounds me because it makes me feel literally connected to the earth. Mm-hmm. And I think I developed this relationship with the earth because of my experiences rock climbing. I would always talk to the rock whenever I climbed, which is pretty funny to many people. But I felt like it also restored a relationship between me and the rock. And sometimes you are forced to talk to the rock because when you're free climbing it and a part of the rock gives up on you and you're hanging up there, you try to talk to it to be good please help me you got me you know so but i always felt like you know a lot of my rock climbing experiences um they were also experiences where i grew strength i got a lot of i got a lot from it and i realized when you touch rock or when you touch anything that gives you a sense of grounding or experience with nature there's some healing there there's some communication there's almost like there's some sort of shift that's happening or it's slowing down something it's communicating something that you may not be literally receiving but there's something happening um so for me i i like to go out you know and just walk bare feet sometimes um I'll do this on my own i'll most likely do this either early in the morning or you know towards sunset somewhere and even if it means just driving out to, you know, the front of, you know, one of the, um, the lookout points by the beach here, I'll just, you know, take off my shoes and I'll hop across the rocks and, you know, just play around on the boulders there and sit for a bit and just walk around and just feel. Yeah, it's it's simple, but it gives me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> How did that first come into your life and and what has it grown to mean to you? It reminds me of, um, so it first came into my life when um, when I was at Lukenia, the place I mentioned earlier that was, you know, this little outcrop that I would go rock climbing at. And I remember I used to wear really tight rock climbing shoes, usually would buy a size or a size and a half smaller than your actual foot size. And at the end of your climbing days, like it was excruciatingly painful and you would just get your shoes off and if you were you know walking off the crag or if you were abseiling off the rocks going back to another climb or you probably did that with other shoes or you did that bare feet and um, because I was hauling a lot of other stuff up the rock I decided I would just do it bare feet and I always have and I think just doing that it reminds me also it takes me to that time I think that's that's actually a big part of it it takes me to that time of my life where I could just feel it's just me and nature. It's just me and just raw nature and connection. And that I feel like I was just one with the environment that I was that I was in. So always when I do that, I think it's like almost an experiential practice. It's like one just builds up on the other. Mm-hmm. And you feel like you're just getting stronger and stronger in terms of connection with the ground. Um, yeah, 
that actually being in the earth and as much as you know that's perceived by many you know you, you have to watch out for so many things when you're walking bare feet but i also find that's part of the experience mm. um you know yeah 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 that's great that's so good thank you And you can find Al Karim's Walking Barefoot Practice in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com slash library, where you can listen to him guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith, and Ron Kelly composes our outstanding music too. If this episode connected with you, subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping Faith Pod, or send us an email at hello at keepingfaithpod.com. We love hearing from you. Next week, we'll talk to Reverend Danielle Weber about her journey from granddaughter of a Unitarian Universalist minister to ordained UU minister herself, and why even with all their challenges, she believes spiritual communities have so much to offer us. But until then, I'll be holding you in hope and faith. I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.